I want to do this episode because this episode out of all of the religion episodes that I have done this this is the most comprehensive of all the reasons why I am unchurched and irreligious this is from a progressive Christianity standpoint this is a platform called God is Gray so today it says we are talking to Billy Graham's grandson Boz Tichvichian Boz is a hero for victims of sexual abuse, an experienced litigator who has handled hundreds of civil and criminal cases. Basil Bostichvichian has dedicated his career to empowering survivors of sexual abuse, sexual assault, and sexual harassment to step forward and seek justice against perpetrators and the institutions legally responsible for their trauma. His current practice focuses almost exclusively on representing child adult abuse survivors throughout the country. More here at bosslawpa.com. Catching episodes every Wednesday. This is God is Gray. This is about Billy Graham's grandson, Bosnian is fighting for you. So let me read to you a clear transcript that you two have of this episode. Hi, beautiful people. My name is Brenda Davis. I'm the creator and host of the podcast and YouTube channel, God is Gray. And today we are talking to Boz Tichvichian, an attorney who has devoted his life to representing survivors of sexual abuse in the U.S. He is the father of two daughters, the grandson of Billy Graham, and a person who's made it his mission to seek justice against the perpetrators, as well as the institutions who failed to protect the victims of sexual abuse. I'm honored to share this conversation today. Boz and I discussed his work, why monetary compensation matters, and how you can better recognize abuse and advocate for the protection and justice, and how you can better recognize abuse and advocate for the protection and justice that survivors deeply deserve. Remember, justice. This is a conversation I find fascinating for many reasons, but also because Boz works Boz's work and advocacy really align with where I intend to go with. Then this next, okay, but also because Boz's work and advocacy really align with where I intend to go with. This next season of in the of God God is gray. So to give context for that statement, I want to share a personal story here. 
But if you rather skip ahead to the interview, I will have it timestamps below. So as many of my beautiful people know about six months ago, I was pretty silent, made some vague comments about my son Valentine being hospitalized. I, and initially this was deeply private. His medical history was something. Valentine's date and I really wanted to keep, and initially this was deeply private. His medical history was something. Valentine's Day and I really wanted to keep between us as a family. But in light of some recent events, we actually got together and decided it would be valuable to share some of these stories. And the reason I'm going to tell you more about this now is twofold. First, the reason Valentine's dad and I decided to share this is because we actually had a harrowing, nightmarish experience advocating for our son's life at a local L.A. hospital. And I decided to share this because I actually had a harrowing nightmarish experience advocating for our son's life at a local LA hospital. My hope is that by being more transparent about our experiences and what we went through, we'll help initiate conversations with both parents and healthcare professionals to see if we can figure out how to make this very broken American healthcare system work better collectively for all of us. And, and to my son's health or, ordeal was instrumental. If not, The sole reason why I decided to pivot and change the way I do my work here. Now, she's a progressive Christian, so she says, So God is great, or season one, if you will. It's, so God is great, or season one, if you will, is something that I consider a project of mine. This is really sharing my experience of what it was like, of what it was. This was really sharing my experiences of what it was to walk out of toxic evangelical theology. And I am enormously grateful that that work resonates with so many of you. I really hope that those videos and conversations continue to inspire people and free people from toxic theology. And I am immensely grateful that that work is... is bringing all of you beautiful people into my life. However, towards the end of God is great. God is great. I got into this somewhat reluctant pattern where I felt like I was running out of, I had run out of things to say about evangelicalism and Christianity, but I was too afraid to stop. I intuitively really felt the depth of my soul that my conversation, I'm sorry, I intuitively, I intuitively really felt the depth of my soul that my confession that I had an abortion was to be the last video that was like the period at the end of this beautiful project I had done. But I was so afraid to stop because I was afraid of losing my career and my voice and I was afraid of losing you beautiful people. So one afternoon I was reluctantly working on this video where I would be calling out mega pastor Brian Houston for allegedly covering up his late father's crimes against children. 
I took a break. I swept up my baby Valentine. It was at this moment that I realized that he had this sudden asymmetry in his jaw. We rushed him to urgent care, hoping that it would be something minor. But we quickly learned that it was a rapidly growing tumor. It was growing visually about a half inch every day, an inch or closer, closer to his airway, so it was life. As I mentioned, we had a truly horrific horrendous time at this, this first hospital, so we were fighting upstream. Then we finally got transferred to Children's in Los Angeles. They were amazing. They diagnosed Super as benign, and they got him on outpatient chemotherapy. We have been doing those treatments ever since. In future conversations about healthcare, I'll be happy to get in. I'll be happy to get more into the nitty gritty of this story. But the reason I'm sharing this experience now for this video, why it's relevant with this base to the GM conversation and where and where we're going within the gray is because it was in children's hospital setting that this cafeteria table with my Brian Houston script that suddenly realized that for me personally I didn't want to go about work that way that I had been. I'd seen a priest with a gray face go up the elevator and read a child their last rites. I had tried to fight for my son's life in a system that was not working efficiently to put it gently I've been exposed to death and childhood illness in a way that I'd never had before. I suddenly felt like this Brian Houston video could just as easily have been me saying, hi, beautiful people. Brian Houston is an asshole. Please like, subscribe, share their friends, etc. I just, for me personally, no longer believe that that sort of video was going to instigate the change that I truly want to see in the world at the time when I was in the hospital. I was going to do a two-week hiatus, which is why I really thought that I could just plow through this medical emergency with Valentine and keep doing my work. But that quickly shifted, and I really felt as a spiritual person, as a Christian that she is, that God was reckoning and doing something inside of me. I really began to shift my perspective and think, okay, we know what's wrong with a lot of these systems. I've called out a lot of things, but I find horrendous and inappropriate things that are actually crimes. But what can we do to humanize these situations to get on the same page, really can instigate and advocate for true change? So, for example, the approach I'm going to take is to delve into each subject from multiple points of view. That's why this channel is called In the Grace. We'll take an interview with Aaron Smallhands Thompson, the porn star who is having wonderful times doing sex work. But that will not be the end of the conversation. We had another conversation with a working class sex worker with a different point of view. I like to talk to traffic victims or people who have had horrendous experiences. People work in porn, people work on the street. Anything we can do to broaden and expand our view. Look at the great, look at the entire picture of one solitary issue that is so massive, figure out where we land. This to me is how we can instigate true change. And I frankly would really like to have fun and some levity while doing it. I'll take way more than one conversation or one person's perspective or one video for me to really understand what it needs to be done to advocate for people to humanize them and to push progress forward in the grave for me is going to be a place where you really see me grow and expand and learn in real time. And my hope is that you will grow and learn and expand with me. This conversation with Boz is definitely the heavier side, but the thing I love about it is that Boz offers actionable statements. He gives hope. He validates the experiences of sexual abuse survivors, and that is something that is so deeply valuable to me. The last thing I'll say is, please, for the love of God, do not consider this video an admonishment 
to how any other creator does their work. I'm simply here telling you my story for anyone who is curious about why God is great and why God is great and it and it's considered a project that's done versus why I chose to pivot in the gray. God is gray. This is my explanation for it. Valentine and what he went through really inspired me, really made me want to press in and figure on how to invite a broader audience to these conversations, how to invite people different or even opposing perspectives with me into this conversation. The goal being, let's learn, expand, and grow together. That's all I really want to hear on in the grace. So without further ado, please like, subscribe, share your friends, donate to my Patreon or Venmo if you can, and do enjoy this conversation with the wonderful boss to begin. get to the interview that's all I really want to hear on the grace without further ado please subscribe okay here we go hello beautiful people today we're talking to boss at bitching you got it tell us about yourself boss well it's great to be here Brenda I don't know it's, I'm not sure what to say. It's sort of boring, but I guess I would say that I'm a lawyer. What I'm doing now is I represent sexual abuse survivors around the country, around the country, along with other lawyers and lawsuits against both perpetrators and institutions who failed to protect them. A lot of times, those who've been sexually victimized don't realize that, yeah, there are criminal cases that tend to focus on the actual perpetrator and ultimate, you know, the ultimate objective in a criminal case would be to punish the perpetrator usually by sending them to prison but oftentimes at least in the cases that I deal with a lot of these perpetrators are on church staff they're working for youth service organizations and the question then becomes okay once the perpetrator goes to prison or is criminally charged does the institution have any type of legal responsibility to the victim and oftentimes the answer to that is yes and so my law firm holds these institutions responsible in a, in a court of law, in a civil court of law, which ultimately hopefully not only brings some justice to my clients, but also brings a compensation as well. Yes, I love all of them. I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. Also, I'm curious to hear a little bit of justification about, you know, the, moneta the monetary gain that someone will have potentially from being involved with you because I heard you mention interview that is a piece of justice like do you believe that monetary not reward but compensation a piece of justice that's crucial yeah I think so I mean one of the one of the reasons why is that it's just the way the system is the way the civil system is civil system is set up is that that's what it offers you know if you go to trial you have a jury rule in your favor the most civil system can provide you is money. Yeah, so that's number one. That's the framework in which you're working in. But but second, I could I can't tell you how many of my clients, how many survivors I meet on a regular basis who have expended thousands upon thousands of dollars trying to get help, who've lost out on job promotions, who lost out on jobs because of the trauma 
but they're still continuing to try to process. And then there are so many who need therapy, who need trauma-informed therapy, who can't afford it. So they spent years going without the very therapy that they need to help heal. And all of that takes money. And so oftentimes, especially cases I deal with it within the Christian context, people almost tend to feel guilty asking for money. And I say, no, I mean, you are entitled to that. You deserve that the church or the institution should have come to you without a lawsuit. They should have come to you regardless and said, what? Can we do financial to help you as you heal? More oftentimes they don't. You hear anything I'm eating. And so we go to we go to court. We have court direct a court directed order to them to pay that money. Or if we don't sell it before before trial. So yeah, money is, you know. Money's important. It's not the end. I'll be all. I think oftentimes I tell my clients regard, we can't control the outcome. I cannot, we can't control the outcome. I cannot control ultimately happens in this case, but the very fact that you hired a lawyer, that that lawyer with you is by your side, forces the organization to come to court and answer for their failures is already a win in my opinion. Yes, I love that. I know you practice in the state of Florida. Is there a statute the limitations on the civil case? I'm sure there is more statute limitations on criminal cases. Is that the same? So I practice across the country in Florida where I'm a Florida lawyer. There are statutes of limitations both criminal and civil outside the state. When I handle a case outside the state, what do I do associate with a lo local lawyer who also handles this type of work and that person and sponsors need to work inside that state for just that case. So I have a lot, you know, cases, North Carolina, New York, Wisconsin, California, and Florida, of course. But you're right, statute limits, statutes and limitations are really important because what they are for your viewers, you may not understand is, or know is statute limitations. Basically, there's a law that says you have a certain period of time from the moment that you were injured or the criminal act, you have to you have a certain period of time to bring that case to court. Now, this criminal statute limitations, there's also civil statute limitations. And so, you know, if you don't bring that case to court within that certain period of time, the doors of the courthouse get shut. And so survivors around the country find themselves, you know, they've been traumatized. It takes years oftentimes for a survivor to even get to the point of thinking about going to court, let alone even disclosing what happened to them. And so oftentimes when they finally make that decision, they are only to be informed that that will beyond the statute of limitations, the doors have shut. The good thing, the goodness that there are a number of states in the last few years that have completely changed their statute of limitations as it relates to sexual abuse and primarily child sexual abuse cases. Thank God. Yeah, so they've extended it. And one of the unique things when you see this, you saw this in New York, New Jersey, North Carolina, we just see Colorado and Arkansas and Louisiana do this as well as they created these look back windows without getting too loyally for a moment. I mean, just say this statute, what a statute of limitations laws changed that that change applies 
to anybody abused on the day that the law was signed and to the bill was signed into law forward. What about all the people before that law was changed? And they go, wow, that's great for people moving forward. But what about us? Well, these look back windows have all many of these states have included these look back windows with these changes of the statute of limitations, which look back window says, listen, you, listen, you, you're beyond the old statute of limitations. These new um, statute of limitations does not apply to you. If we're going to create a one or two or even three year look back window that says, listen for one to two to three years, a window is going to open for those who've been abused beforehand. You have one or two or three years to file a lawsuit. Then that window is going to shut. And so, for example, North Carolina just had a two year, I think it was a two year window just shut on December 31st. New York had a window that was open for almost two years, but shut a few months ago. So did New Jersey. So for those survivors who are going, wow, this is, I'm glad for the statue of limitations changing for four victims in the future. What about me? Because I feel like I've been locked out. I would say no one checks with a lawyer to see if you might be living in a state that has looked back with them. If not, then lobby or your representatives to create one. Hmm. I love that we're starting here because my goal with this conversation is to inform people of what the possibilities are. That you are out here, that you exist, that you're here for them. And also to help equip them to recognize where they've even been abused. Because you and I share a common history, having gone to church, we're both intimately familiar with the rhetoric and toxic theology that keeps victims silent. The overwhelming un inundation of men with egos that are just out of this world they are perpetuating these crimes and silencing people so i want to get into all that beginning with why is it boss and i know the answer to this you are uniquely equipped are uniquely equipped to handle these cases one of the facts that's so interesting being that you have billy graham's grandson so, you're in, so you are intimately familiar with church, church history and this theology. Tell me more about that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a Christian household. I would say I was evangelical. It wasn't. I would describe it as fundamentalist. But yeah, I was. I'm the grandson of Billy Graham. And, you know, I consider it a great privilege and honor of my life. I loved, I, I called him Daddy Bill. I loved Daddy Bill. Daddy Bill, at least when I knew him, as you know, starting in the early 70s. He, he was one of the most humble people I've ever met. And so I grew up in a world where, yeah, I would became very familiar with the evangelicalism. I became very familiar not only with the theology, but also with the culture of evangelicalism. And, you know, there are some things about that culture that are good, and there are some things that are really, really bad. And so that gave me, you know, even as I and I wasn't really familiar with the issues related to abuse growing up. And it wasn't until I became a prosecutor that I first encountered really an eye on a front row level of the horrors of child sexual abuse and sexual assault. And so ultimately that led me to start a unit in our district attorney's office, sexual crimes unit, where I was the chief prosecutor for that. And, and one of the reasons I did that was because I saw so many prosecutors who were really uncomfortable with these types of cases because prosecutors like to win cases and get convictions because that's how they get promoted. And I also found some of these abuse cases, sexual abuse cases, especially those involving children, 
prosecutors are really uncomfortable even filing on them. And if they didn't file on them, they usually would clean them out pretty quickly. And I thought, man, these are some of the worst offenses known to humankind. And you're giving the guy a slap on the wrist if he gets charged at all. And I said to my boss one day, I said, well, what if I give away all my, you know, possession cases, burglary cases and all that? And just give me and a few people in the office just the sexual abuse cases. Let's see what we can do with them. So anyway, so the combination of that experience of growing up in the evangelical world and understanding how it works in many ways with theology combined with spending years as a division chief of a sexual crime unit really is a unique combination. And I really use, and I've really used that combination in my work now as a, as a lawyer representing survivors because many of my cases are cases where my clients were abused within the church or by representatives of the church. So when the church comes up with some of the excuses or defenses because of the world that I grew up in, I'm, I'm able to call them on it and to identify what's truthful and what's not. Yes, oh my God, I'm so grateful for that. For me, I have a two-year-old son now in a church or is one of the and a church or is one of the least safe places that I can imagine sending my son. I would be hyper vigilant if I had my son alone with anyone in that institution. Exactly for the reasons that you described in a lot of the work I have you quoted on the Royce report as saying the most dangerous offenders are often born and raised in the church. Sure, do you why do you find that to be true? Well, because more often than not, they're loved and respected by the congregation. And they, people feel like they know somebody that they're born and raised in that church. They feel like they know this person. So the more they know them, the more they trust them and combine that with the fact that that person, if they've been born and raised in that church, has a significant degree of knowledge with regards to the theology of that church. And they're able to twist that theology in very subtle, but also incredibly destructive ways in how they groom and ultimately abuse those in their midst so yeah i think i think they're incredibly dangerous i find the most difficult cases that i've had i have had been involving people the leaders in the church or people who are long term members of the church where people just don't believe that they could commit such a crime I've had been involving people, the leaders in the church, or people who are long-term members of the church, where people just don't believe that they can commit such a crime. So at the end of the day, what ends up happening is, is that you combine that with these perpetrators are most just all about them, are more just all about, all of them are narcissists. And so what they do is they know this. So what they'll do over time is they'll, they'll spend a narrative to the point where ultimately, they get the church, the majority of the church, believing that they're actually the victim. And the victim and the victim's family, the actual victim, the victim's family, actually like the perpetrators and perpetrators of some type of injustice. And you know, more than not, 
than that, I, for my, my own experience, it's the real victim in their family ends up on the outside of that church after coming forward and disclosing abuse. And that is absolutely, and that's absolutely ludicrous. I mean, the church should be the safest refuge for all people, especially those vulnerable. And why would I, and why, and what, what, what I have found over and over and over again is that the church is the safest place for the perpetrators and the least, in the least safe place for the vulnerable. And that's not the Jesus that I know. Yeah, so just because you might call yourself a church doesn't make you one. So just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't make you one. So just because you call yourself a pastor doesn't make you one. Absolutely. And I think something that people need to recognize is that listening to this interview and they find themselves offended, like, how dare you say this isn't a safe place or a refuge? I know my leaders. I trust these people. We have to recognize culture. I have to talk more openly about particularly childhood sexual abuse or sexual abuse of children, teens, because abuses are magnetic and charming. They don't wear black. They're not huddled in the corner. They don't look like bonzos. They're the Larry Nasirs who have 100% access to their children because they're magnetic, because everyone trusts them. This is a part of the manipulation. And furthermore, you said something so interesting in another interview about like, Basically, you were saying, how can you know that someone actually, how do you know if you're in a safe church or how you can recognize where your church might not be safe? And you answer something to the effect of, if someone has unchecked power, if they present it as a conflated image, man and God, this is the voice of God coming through this individual that they have theology that can't be questioned. The problem with that is that to me is the definition of evangelicalism and it's the definition of a lot of these fundamental fundamentalist churches. Fundamentalist churches where they say, if you question my authority, you're questioning God. If you question my theology, well, then you're not reading your Bible hard enough. Like I know the interpretation of this and there's no other interpretation. That is why so many of us have pivoted into deconstruction and deconversion and even deconstruction and deconversion are vilified by these demagogue pastors because they don't want to lose their unchecked power and they might not even and they might even not realize that there's that that is villainous that and they might even realize that that is as villainous as they are or they're as manipulative as they are or else have been taught that their voice can be conflated with god that they are god within themselves and they're that rep and they're that representation so all that said we have quite a beast to overcome and helping people in this congregation is recognize that you still have every right to your autonomy for that ping in your spirit or in your intuition that says i know everyone loves this pastor but for some reason i don't want to leave my child in their presence like how do we give people permission to be like we Know you're told to blindly follow, but in the case of protecting yourself and the ones you love in your congregation, your fellow siblings, we cannot have an unchecked source of power, right? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, Brenda, think of think of this. I don't know another job in the world. Maybe there's one that does exist where somebody once a week is able to get up in front of a group of whether it's 200 
or 20,000 people and speak uninterrupted for 30 minutes if you're lucky. 45, 50 if you're not so lucky. Think about that. I mean, think about what that creates in somebody. I mean, if you're the nicest person in the world, if you're doing that week in and week out, week in and week out, it's creating us, we're creating these, this type of leadership style where we place all this power and authority usually in the hands of one person, usually in the hands of a man who gets up and does this every week. And you combine that with so many people at church today, they want community, they want fellowship. And so, so many of our churches, I was guilty of this years ago. One day I looked at my wife, I said, do you realize that just about all of our activities outside of our churches in, is in church? I said, I don't think that's what, what, what wait, what, what, I gotta read this again. And so, so many of our churches, I was guilty of this years ago. I one day I looked at my wife, I said, do you realize that just about all of our activity outside of our work is in church? I said, I don't think that's what Jesus intended. And so, but that became our community, our friends, and our people. We saw two or, or three times a week. And so people are really nervous about losing community, especially when they have kids and their kids are ingrained in that community. And so when somebody goes, well, wait a minute, I've got a question, Pastor. I'm not sure if I agree with what you said. I've got concerns with the person who's serving in the nursery. Or can you, can you give me a copy of that child protection policy of the church? And they get pushed back. What they're really getting told is, get back in line and shut up. And if you don't get get it back in line and shut up, we're, what's going to end up happening is we're going to lead you to the door. We're going to start telling people that you are divisive, that you gossip, that you're not for the, you know, you know not for the un- anonymity of the of the spirits and so you are now the problem and it's amazing how oftentimes that works over and over again so the person who's going wait a second i've got a question i got a concern pretty soon if they don't shut up and get back in line and quite frankly many of them do because they don't want to lose that community for those who don't find themselves on the outside know where they know when they come to me and i say man consider yourself blessed that you're outside of that community you didn't need that but that's easier said than done when you spent years cultivating friendship you always told that this is a church family in quotations we're going to do life together in quotations we're going to do life together as long as you're in agreement with us that you don't have any significant disagreements with leadership that if you do you might be able to express them but then once you've expressed it now, you're supposed to trust leaders to deal with what you told them. You need to be quiet, not talk to anybody else about it. As long as you play by those rules, welcome to our community. And it's in those types of communities and those types of environments are environments that fuel abuse, not only, you know, child sexual abuse, things that I'm dealing with, but all types of spiritual abuse, adult on adult abuse. And and that's what we're seeing that so much in the more conservative evangelical church. And that's why so many people ultimately, I think, especially younger people like Antonia Ray Myers are just leaving. 
I left the church nearly three months ago. I'm adding my commentary now. Back to the episode. They're walking out there, find a community elsewhere that includes me. I think that's what COVID has done to them in a large degree. Yes, I, that includes me. And with so many people inside the church, it's forcing them to find a community elsewhere. Me too. And a lot of them are going, hey, I sort of like this community. This community is more authentic and genuine. And I can speak my mind. I don't feel controlled. That would be me. So why would I go back here unless I feel, you know, unless I feel guilt fed into it because it's what God wants me to do, right? That's the problem. It's the conflation with God. It's telling you that these things are of God and not of these mere mortals that are actually manipulating you. And it's just reminding me of watching a speech or the sermon that Brian Houston of Hillsong Church did to address the allegations of his father's rampant sexual abuse of young boys and, and we're talking about assaults full on and just watching his church rally around him and give him accolades as though he's so brave and courageous to stand on the stage before forthcoming about these things it is very disturbing to me because it's so little and it's so late and he also watched an interview between a journalist and one of the victims of Brian Houston's father, this man is living a life that has been full of destruction, full of pain. He is not at peace with himself. Why so often when we are told as Christians to take care of the least of these and to make sure that everyone is safe and protected, why do we choose the narrative that favors the pastor, that favors the leadership, and that just goes on? Believing there is some kind of heroes are finally doing too little too late. We always, we always, we tended to gravitate towards the narratives that make us more comfortable. And, and so the narrative that makes a lot of people feel more comfortable is that this is the leader, this leader did do that. That maybe this child or this, this reported victim has some mentally, you know, mental illness. And so therefore, you know, we don't, we're not accusing them of lying, but they've got issues in quotations. And so we're going to, and then when the pastors will spin that narrative subtly, sometimes, sometimes not so subtly, we go, yes, see, that's right. And, and now we are, and that pastor ultimately has now shifted the spotlight away from usually the man himself and shift the spotlight on. Well, this problem, this person has a problem. We need to pray for them and we need to love them. But, you know, basically, they're a liar. Now, they're not going to use that language, even though uh, many of them would. But so, and I think that you have that with the fact that in most of American evangelicalism, at least that I know, we've turned it into, we've turned that into. We've turned to ch we've turned to church we've turned church leaders and pastors into rock stars. Yes, I mean look at what happened as what was that guy's name? Carl Lentz from Hillsong in New York. You know, Carl Lentz was hanging around Justin Bieber, hanging around all these really, really famous people. And we know that well well we'll never get a chance to hang around Justin Bieber. But oh my goodness, our pastor does. How cool is that? Now I want to get as close to our pastor as possible. I want to get into their inner circle. 